So I think it was a combination of just this loyalty of obligation to to not disappoint my coach. And secondly, is probably my own internal motivation and, and self-satisfaction that I saw the results of my efforts. You know, I was healthier, I slept better. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living Podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host. Our guest today is Mike Adsit, who was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma at the age of 52, which was just the beginning of what I'll call a renaissance for him because it led him to examine his unhealthy lifestyle. During his recovery from chemotherapy, he found inspiration watching Lance Armstrong compete in the Tour de France and decided that he would try bicycling to get in shape, which led him to competing in the Senior Olympics, eventually finding new love, a new career, and a new life mission I can't wait for you to meet him. But before we do, I want to talk to you about your next move, your renaissance, if you will. I created a free guide for you designed to help you start taking the steps towards your next act. It's a workbook called Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot. You can sign up to receive it as an email series with some ideas and practical exercises you can use over the course of several weeks to get past feeling stuck. You can do these at your own pace as they will be waiting for you in your inbox when you're ready for the next step. I'll remind you at the end of the episode and tell you where to sign up if you're interested, okay? In the meantime, here's Mike Adsit. Let's go. Hey, Mike. Thanks so much for being with me today. Hi, Yvonne. Mike, oh my gosh, I'm just so excited that you're here. I always like to say how I found guests and for you, I was reading a book called Life Reimagined by Barbara Bradley Haggerty. And in chapter seven, she started to tell your story. And I didn't even finish chapter seven before I contacted you <laughs> because <laughs> I was so inspired by what you were doing. And I am, I'm just so pleased to have you here. Well, thank you very much. I am I am so honored to be here. So let's see where to start. Um, I know that Barbara. So so her book is all about looking at midlife and aging, and she kind of launches into your story in the book. But I don't know how you guys connected. How did she find you to begin with? Uh, we ca- we connected through the National Senior Games, Senior Olympics. So I started competing in the national senior games and i started competing in 2007 and competed every two years you have to qualify in the state games in order to compete in the national games and so i i competed competed in 2007 and um in 2009 i think it was in california and i didn't go but in 2011 um i competed it was down in texas in houston texas and um, I placed pretty high in the time trial bicycling, time trial, or four bicycling events. Um, anyway, the director of public relations uh, for the National Senior Games in 2007, there was an article in their little daily newspaper about me being a cancer survivor. 
So he saw me in the 2011 game mm-hmm. and came up and had a conversation with me. And then a couple of days later, he, 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 he said, look, I got this call from this woman who's writing this book about, about seniors. And she would like to interview some, some uh, athletes. And would you be willing to do an interview? And I said, sure. There you go, because the chapter that was all about exercise and how exercise um, can help, you know, mitigate aging, the signs of aging and and especially cognitive stuff and things like that. So, okay, there you go. There you go. So your story kind of starts back in, what was it, 2001, right? Right. And you you got the diagnosis of uh, cancer at the age of 52? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I, kind of context is I own my own company, a construction company, a real estate company in Northeast Pennsylvania. And in 2001, I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, stage four. And kind of as a result, of that, I went to, I had to go through six rounds of chemotherapy to suppress it. And this back in 2001 was chemotherapy was the primary treatment Anyway, at that point in time, you know, running in your own company with 20, 15 employees and so on and so forth, it's a pretty stressful kind of business. And so, yeah. and I was not doing any physical activity whatsoever. And I actually was up to around 280 pounds and, and on a six foot frame. So, so I really kind of had all the poor health, poor diet, uh, no, you know, no exercise, high stress kind of things that trigger a lot of things and a lot of men it triggers heart attacks yeah. in my case it likely had something to do with cancer there is some research about the relationship to cancer and and uh, and, and life's you know health health things mm-hmm. anyway in in 2001 that summer after i was doing when i couldn't do anything i was i started watching the tour de france and here on the Tour de France was a story about this guy named Lance Armstrong, who, who was going to, you know, had a 20% chance of living and somehow miraculously survived and is now in the Tour. And he was winning the Tour de France. And I mean, it was an awesome, inspirational story. And, you know, and so I, he started a foundation called the Livestrong Foundation. And so I, you know, looked it up and was reading reading about it and so on and so forth and and kind of following it and the next year in 2002 I was watching the tour again and there was this interview with his uh his coach who was a gentleman named Chris Carmichael and Chris Chris is uh was one of the people that successfully interpreted how the East Germans trained athletes which was much different than the american model where you do interval training and mm-hmm. that's how he began to tra- tra- train lance and several other peoples to be the high level athletes they were and so at that point in time he had <clears throat> he had um started a training company an online training company called carmichael training services and and at that during the thing the tour de france in 2002 he he was offering a six or 12 week plan for some nominal amount of money just to get people started. And by that time I was at this point, I, I really got to change my lifestyle. I mean, the 
you know, I had, I had survived the first round of cancer and, and I had actually read, have read a book during that time uh, called the force program that was written by two oncologists from, from um, uh, uh, Wow Cornell uh, in, in New York. And they had done a fairly informal study about whether the survivability of cancer could be enhanced by physical activity. Mm-hmm. And, the, the, and it was a small study of maybe 50 people and Sloan Kettering, excuse me. And so they wrote this little book about it. And the remarkable thing that came out about it was that people had a fairly active, uh, high, high level of physical activity where the survival rate was almost 40 to 50% higher. Mm. It was a phenomenal number. And subsequently over the years, there's been about three other studies on this that basically have codified that initial finding. Mm-hmm. So I looked at this and I said, and, and at that time, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma had a 50% survival rate. And wow. so I'm, I'm saying, well, this is a no brainer. And I always like riding a bike. So I didn't, in fact, I didn't even own a bike at that point. <laughs> so wow. I went out and, and uh, bought a bicycle and, and started riding and I could ride about a quarter mile. I mean, I mean, maybe a mile and I was ex- totally exhausted Yeah. everything else. But then I joined this Carmichael training program and I got assigned a coach who happened to be this woman named Kelly Emmett, who was a, was a professional mountain bike coach and we did it online. And so she asked me to set some goals. I love it. And Even back in the day, you were doing it online. That's great. That's so that's, that's ubiquitous now, but that was, that it? was something else for back then, right? Oh, it was a big deal. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, yeah. it was just emails back and forth. But um, anyway, I set a goal because the Lance Armstrong Foundation, the Livestrong Foundation, had an annual ride in Austin, Texas in October. Mm-hmm. And uh, every October, and they'd gone on for four or five years. And I said, I, and I said, I want to do a, I want to be able to do a 50 mile bike ride that October. And so in 2002, wow. that was my goal. And that was my coaching was to get from A to B. So this was what, how many months did you have before October rolled around? Um, well, it was July, uh, Tour de France is in July. Yeah. Okay. About three or four months. Yeah. Yeah. So that had, that, that was serious training then to be ready for that. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it was steady training. I mean, it's about, you know, at your own pace and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I, after the, the Livestrong ride, I really decided to stick with this. And so I subscribed to the Carmichael training program, which is a monthly subscription. And so I had a coach and I had somebody to pull me along, which sometimes in life you need people to pull you along. Mm -hmm. And so, so we just became this steady training program. And the next, I'm going to say the next summer, early in the summer, there was a local bicycle club and they had, uh, were sponsoring a time trial. And I said, what the heck, I'll, ju- I'll just see what I can do. It was yeah. a 10-mile time trial along the river. And, and I got on my bicycle, and I was in the 55-year-old-plus category at that point in time, I think, or whatever, 50. Anyway, there were only three people in my group, but I won the race. Uh-huh. 
Awesome. So I was I was now hooked. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I started senior bicycle racing. Oh my gosh! And then and, have gone on to to do so much, right? Yeah, I, I I and during that time when I started racing, I started traveling to as we were talking about. I'd go to Connecticut because there were always two or three races in the Northeast every weekend. So I would I would race in Connecticut or Pennsylvania or or, or New Jersey and 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 there was a bicycle club that I belonged to down in New Jersey that rented the fairgrounds every Tuesday and so there would be informal bicycle races every Tuesday so it gave you kind of a lot of benchmarks and at the same time I had Kelly as a coach who was giving me benchmarks and you know training training programs that I that you know I you know I, I think for a personalities guilt's a big driver <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you're right. And, you know, I kind of, this, this, you're making it sound so easy, but I, I, which makes me think I kind of want to, I kind of want to take you back a step and, okay. and think about that, that early time. Cause you were heavy. And I, I think yep. I saw some, a note, um, or it was, it was in something that Barbara had written about you that you shed 60 pounds within a few yep. months. Right. Yep. So imagine that in the beginning of that training, that must have been a slog. Like if that, oh, right? A big slog. A and in in Pennsylvania, where I live, in Northeast Pennsylvania. Fortunately, I, you know, in Milford is is there's a 30 mile stretch of the Delaware River, this national park now, or national recreation area, and so they tore. You know, it was all developed. They tore all the houses down, and and so they were all these roads that you could ride on old roads that were no traffic on. So it was like ideal, but a lot of Hills and Ooh. trying to go up a Hill for a 280 person. With, but again, I go back to Chris's principle of periodization is it's an incremental step-by-step training process. And what I had to commit to about um, 10 hours a week of training. So it did became, you get up in the morning and do it first thing? Like, how did, how did you fit? You're a busy guy, right? You've got your company you're running and how did you fit this would, into your I life? I would normally do it in the afternoons uh-huh. after like three 30 or four o'clock and the crew would go home uh-huh. and then I would go out and train. And obviously in good weather, I would train outdoors and then in indoor would you, they make a bicycle trainer that you mount your bicycle to and uh-huh. you do it indoors, which is extremely boring. Right. And doing 10 hours a week on a trainer is a real group. Even back then, you didn't have all this Peloton stuff with all the right. technology and everything. It was just, it was just grinded out, you know, and you'd have a television set and you'd watch movies or, or whatever, but uh, it was a wow. commitment, but, but, but the need to report it to somebody every week mm. in terms of put, filling out my chart to say that I've done this and, and, you know, this week you've got to do two hours of this and this this week you're going to do an hour and a half of this particular thing was kind of a gradual building thing. And, you know, obviously burning 10 hours a week of 600 calories an hour, you can begin to lose weight if you don't just keep eating all the time. And so that process happened, you know, over time. Yeah. Wow. It didn't happen. So it, was it purely the accountability to your coach that 
that kept you going? I mean, like, you know, let's say you get to the end of your day and you've had a challenging day at work and you're exhausted and you don't want to go get on that bike. Was it just going up? Oh, Kelly's going to check in with me. Was there like, was there anything else that, that was just driving you or how did you get past like those moments in time, which I, I'm sure must've come up for you where you're like, I just don't feel like doing it. If I don't work out in the morning, forget it. You right. know, so for me, exactly. midday would be uh, not, not, I would just wouldn't happen. Exactly. And, and it, it very much, <clears throat> I, I really have to, and I would say it to anyone in terms of if you're, if you're going to move into a fitness regime is whether it's the gym you go to, or you're going to do it at home is I would hiring, hiring a coach, at least in your early years is I think is essential because it, you're right. I mean, you get busy and you get, you get waylaid doing this or that, or, and all of a sudden the hours are spent along and it's six o'clock at night and, and, and you haven't done your training or it's on a Saturday and it's cold out and you don't feel like going out and it's raining. And so, so there are all kinds of excuses not to do something. And, yeah. and so I think it was a combination of just this loyalty of obligation to, to, to not disappoint my coach. And secondly, is probably my own internal motivation and, and self-satisfaction that I saw the results of my efforts. You know, I was healthier. I slept better. I, you know. Yeah. How quickly did you start to really feel that? Like you noticed you were sleeping better. You were feeling better. Was it pretty instantaneous or did it happen after a month? Do you kind of, do you even remember at this point? No, I don't. I think the. I think the Livestrong ride in October of 2002 was really kind of, wow, I've done this. And yeah. I can, I can, you know, I've, I've seen the results of, you know, within a short period of time of a, basically a year of not being able to ride two miles and to be a ride every day with a relative amount of ease and climb hills and, and, and enjoy the countryside and, and the other thing that really came out of it, Yvonne, was was the absence of stress. Because the ability to, to, no matter what happened during the day, I could get on my bicycle because I had a training program I had to do. And so that stress of running a business, dealing with employees, dealing with bills, dealing with all of this just disappeared because your attention is switched to something that is entirely different and it's called the road and it's you got to do 10 minutes of this and 10 minutes of this for 30 seconds and it just changes all of a sudden things change and so you go back home or you finish your training and you're tired and you take a shower and you you know you can sleep the night and today tomorrow so you begin to kind of segment the day into into things that I think ultimately was a lot healthier. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Like uh, this summer, um, uh, my husband bought me a paddleboard for my birthday, an early birthday gift. And I've been wanting a paddleboard for forever. And we spent, because of COVID, we didn't really go anywhere this summer. So we, we have a local beach and, and we would go most afternoons when my husband would get out of work um, go put, we had a kayak, a little place for the kayak on the water and I inflate my inflatable paddleboard and head out. And I mean, man, the, the minute I would hit that water, 
the stress of the day was just, uh, just annihilated, just gone, you know? And I think there's something about being, doing something physically immersive, especially maybe in nature, you know, you're outside and you're, you've got that uh, all, you know, the view and the, the breeze and whatever's happening in the, in the weather that day. Yeah, and I think by, you know, and I, I, in 2004, my cancer came back. And, and, and at that point in time, you know, lymphoma was a treated, you would treat it with this, this cocktail of drugs initially, and, and it would last about 30 months, two years to 30 months, then it would come back and they would give you a different cocktail, and that would last 18 months, and they give you a third catalog category and then pretty soon you ran out of options and you just you know that was the end and I think that the fitness thing when it did come back in 2004 I believe it was you know for there were two really fortunate events a that I was in really good physical condition so I it I, I you know the scan picked up that it was coming up I didn't really get sick again like I had done the first time and have Mm. symptomatics. But the second part of it was at that fortunate point in time, the cancer treatment community had begun to change with a different treatment, which was called monoclonal antibodies. And and so I was one of the early people um, through um, Hackensack uh, Cancer Center and, and my local oncologist in New Jersey to start using this thing called this antibody called rituxan that's now a standard in cancer treatment because it has a tendency to suppress the white cells. They attack the cells within your the cancer cells within your body. And there's very little side effect. Now I know that at some point you had a stem cell, you had stem cell replacement surgery. Yeah, that was told, later on. That was later on. Okay. Gotcha. All right. Yeah, this was my second relapse. We'll call it, they call it relapse in the, mm-hmm. in the thing. But anyway, the the there's not many side effects to it and it's it's not a chemotherapy kind of things and i responded very well to it and in fact i was on rituxan every three months for eight year eight or nine years oh wow and, and but you were able to well. live your life and continue your training and continue my training wow. and but but again my health i mean my training really contributed to a fairly strong health and immune system and and in in kind of a metal mental balance in all of this and so you know i just took the treatment and it allowed me to take this treatment is not an oh god thing but it was a it was i can take it in stride mm. and, and the other important thing that i would add that i did at this time be, because i had started racing all over the this you know the northeast was and i and i had gotten involved in lance's foundation called the Livestrong Foundation, which was really the first first organization that looked at, at cancer patients as survivors, mm-hmm. cancer victims as survivor. And it was all about survivorship. And which is really shift, a, right? A, a, but it's a huge shift in the whole cancer community mm-hmm. because there were millions of us, six million, seven million people in the country that are cancer survivors. And as treatment options became stronger and stronger, people are living longer and longer and longer. And so the whole issue of survivorship is is so much more important. And it really kind of shifted from this, 
and I'm not being critical of the American Cancer Society, but it, you know, American Cancer Society was really directed at, at helping people at the immediate treatment stop and then kind of dropped off the edge of the table. Mm-hmm. And so the Livestrong Foundation and cancer, and quite honestly, um, Lance Armstrong's inspiration really inspired people all over the country to, of self-realization that I'm, I'm strong, I'm a cancer survivor, and no matter what happens, I've got to keep moving on in life. So it was, it changed the perspective that cancer was a death sentence to cancer is survivable. Yeah. And it was remarkable. And I, so I got involved very strongly as a volunteer and contributor and fundraiser for the Livestrong Foundation. <clears throat> and then I used the bike racing because in my age group, I had gotten to a level of fitness where I would usually be on the podium all the time, either first, second or third in most bike races because I was intensely training. And so I used, I used bicycle racing and Livestrong as, as a catalyst to, to demonstrate to other people. And I would wear a Livestrong jersey uh, racing kit all the time and, and, and use it kind of as an example to other people that, that you know, you, all of us have a friend or a family member or a parent who's, who is dealing with cancer or has dealt with cancer. And it's, it's a universal kind of issue across the country, across the world for that matter. And so I would end up finding people would come up to me after the race and say, oh, I'm so happy you're doing this. I'm so happy you survived. And, you know, my sister has breast cancer and, 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 you know, you're such an inspiration. And that beyond the training became this other kind of driver, I guess, so to speak, is, is to really be an example. And, and, you know, cause as Lance always talked about being a cancer survivor has, has an obligation he called the obligation of survivors mm. and, and if you ever read his book it, it, his first book which is you know and again a lot of people are critical of lance because of the drug thing but what he did was really a catalyst and change in the cancer community and yeah you can't take away book, from from what's mm-hmm. happened in that community you really can't and it's Absolutely. amazing like what you're talking about is is going from uh doing this thing for yourself and then all of a sudden you have a bigger purpose right you've got Absolutely. yeah and then that starts to drive you and you you ended up coaching people as well right At, for through their cancer uh diagnosis am i right, right about I, that yeah i well and that was there were there were um yeah because people people would see there would be a newspaper article about me being a cancer survivor in a local newspaper you know, mm-hmm. winning the Connecticut senior games as, as a case in point or whatever. And so people would call me up and say, you know, and other people that knew other people would say, gee, you know, my, 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 my son's been diagnosed or my father's being diagnosed. Would you give him a call and talk to him? And, and he's really down because cancer, cancer, people are diagnosed with cancer really go two different directions. They go out or they go in and the end is very dangerous. Mm-hmm because it becomes a self, I, I call it a self-fulfilling, um, you, you just, you don't want to admit that you have it, you go into a denial thing, and it just kind of feeds on itself, and I, I've learned over the years in coaching cancer patients, cancer survivors, is the more you talk about, it, the more you get it out, the more you share it with your friends and your community and your uh, support system, 
caregivers, call it whatever you want, uh, the outcome, it's just like the force program. The more, more exercise and more activity you get, your survivorship goes up. The more your mental balance is on a positive side, your survivorship will go up. Yeah. And the mental so, game in this is just huge, right? You can't. It's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so anyway, that, that, that's how it came about. And uh, this kind of cancer coaching and, and Livestrong, there's another organization that got spun off of Livestrong called the Immerman, A- Immerman Angels. It's out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N. And what they do is if you're a cancer survivor and you want to be a cancer coach, you register with them and they connect you with people, other people that have called in looking for, for help. And so you, it's all done by the phone and you really can't talk about medical things. You're talking about personal things and it's really an inspiring organization. And I've, I participated in that over the years too. That's fantastic. Like I've not heard of them. I'm going to, I'll provide a link to that in the show notes for yes. people. Yeah. It's a good organization. Tremendous. And then you did have, I mean, your, your cancer changed and, and came back later. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. So it came back in 2012. Uh-huh. And uh, anyway, I'd been on this Rituxan program and doing well in racing and, 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 uh, the last senior game I had done before I was diagnosed in 2011. And I actually had down to Texas and I actually was uh, uh, finished fifth or sixth in the country in my age group. So wow. I was really, you know, and I was, my weight was down to around 205 pounds. And, and, and in 2012, I had started training again to be able to qualify for the 2013 games. And, um, and I was at a bike race somewhere in Rhode Island, I actually remember vividly. And I got up in the morning, I was at a campground, staying at a campground, and I got up and I was shaving and I noticed all of a sudden I noticed these lumps on my shoulders, which I had never had before. Hmm. And um, so anyway, long story short, it I, I ended up for a biopsy and my cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, had changed from one type of lymphoma to another one. Mm. and which was kind of very disconcerting because the monoclonal antibody I was used no longer works with the other cancer Mm. and so I got a consult at at Hackensack University Hospital which is an excellent cancer center and also I went to Sloan Kettering and did a consult there and basically what I had was a very it switched from a non-aggressive small cancer to a very aggressive large cell cancer and so what i basically the bottom line was i needed to have another big round of chemotherapy to to suppress it but if i was going to keep it suppressed i would need to do a stem cell transplant Uh, what they call an auto stem cell there's Mm -hmm. a big long term for it but basically they harvest your own cells and then uh, i use the word kill you with cancer or kill you with chemotherapy which they do they bring your white cell down to zero and then then they put your cells back in you. And then after anywhere nine to 14 days, your own white cells start reproducing and hopefully they don't have the cancer with them. Wow. Amazing. And yeah, that was it was it was a pretty grueling process. I mean, it was the can the 
chemotherapy was um, so aggressive that they had to do it in the hospital. And so mm. you, you would go in every three weeks for four days and just get hammered with chemotherapy. And then, then after three or four rounds, they would harvest your cells. Um, kind of um, looks like almost like a kidney dialysis machine where they pump your blood out and they would strip the cells and then they would freeze them. And then you would go into this, hosp into this hospital ward for seven days of intensive chemotherapy and bring your, to bring your white cells down to zero. And you could never sleep more than about 45 minutes at a time because mm. there were nurses and, and it was, you know, and after that, then they would, they would inject you back or they would put your cells back in and then you would be basically in a um, recovery facility. There's an apartment that hospital has. And so you would, you'd have a 24 hour nurse, but you lived in this apartment and, and had a, would have to go back and sit in this room all day watching television or doing whatever i have a picture of the day that i got stem cell and i'm riding a trainer <laughs> just to just right to show you had the, you had them bring a bike in didn't you or well, they had a little they had a little exercise bike there and, and the I first day that. i was in this facility i said i got to get back on that bicycle it was just my own thing that i'm not down and out mm -hmm. and and so i don't have any hair and i'm bald and and everything else but i'm i'm pedaling this bicycle and i had the nurse take a picture it's one of my favorite pictures about, oh my gosh can you send me that picture mike oh i, I will that. yeah okay it's, it's, you know i'm wow. doing it so anyway long story short after that i had to, you once you return home you have to stay isolated for about 30 to 45 days because you don't have an immune system and you got to keep from from people and so luckily my daughter and and some other people really helped me kind of through this recovery thing at home. And after that, I started, I decided I'm going to, no matter what, I'm going to train to be in the 2013 senior games. And, wow. um, and meantime, I, the, the book that you talk about, you know, I had met her in 2012. I mean, she had called me in 2012 and we started having this conversation in the interview. So she kind of rode with me through this whole whole recovery thing and followed me and 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 I had already qualified but my goal was I've got to get to that game because that became the driver of my recovery yeah I knew it and I had a pattern it, it worked right and you actually if I remember right too in, in in that part you actually had I don't think I've got my notes in front of me but as maybe you can kind of clue me in on this there was um an expectation of the number of cells you would regenerate and you that, that would happen over the course of days and it happened for you you like doubled or tripled that in one day do, do you do you know what i'm talking yeah. about so yeah, explain I, that one for me well they're really yes there's there's when they harvest your stem cells after you've done this chemotherapy and i they put you on this machine to harvest your white cells so they can put them in free deep freeze before you go through this reinjection process and normally they have to, and I don't remember the exact number, but normally they, they book in about five to six days that you come in and have this, these cells extracted because most people will, they'll pull a thousand to 2000 cells per session and they need 10 or 12,000. I don't remember the exact number. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think as a direct result of my fitness going into this thing, um, 
I was done in three days because they were harvesting 5,000 cells a day wow. versus 1,000. It's a direct relationship to fitness. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would add that the, these grueling rounds of chemotherapy were, were very survivable for me every three weeks because I could go home and I'd be out walking the roads. You know, I'd walk this two mile road just every day right after. And I was able to do that without this normal, huge exhaust. I mean, I was exhausted, but I was doable. Yeah. It was just kind of my coping mechanism, right. but it was yeah. also my level of fitness and being able to respond back to the, to these, these really taxing chemotherapy, chemical attacks on your body. Wow. It's just tough. It's incredible. Tough, but I'm a survivor. Clearly, clearly. Wow. And you made it to the games in 2013. And I made it to the games in 2013. I did, you know, I, I wasn't at a level of fitness that I was in 2011, but I was there and I, and I, and I got it done and it was fun. And, and, you know, at that same time, Barbara was writing this book. And so she came to the games to do photography. She's do the photography and the interview. So she would interview me every day. And, and in the mornings we'd go out and ride the race course just so she got a feel for what I was, what the race course was. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and, and by the end of the games, the end of the games, I, um, cause I introduced her to some women, her age group, cause she got to watch women in her age group do these races. Cause there's women's and men's events all in the same day. Uh-huh. And she was like, so inspired by these other women, her age are just screaming. And, and Barbara's an excellent athlete. And I said, look at, you could be here in two years. I said, you could do this and you could place very high. You think I could do this? And I said, yes, you could do it. And I said, now I'll coach you. And that's where that kind of story started. I love it. I love it. Oh my gosh. And then you did become her coach, right? Yes, yes, yes. Oh my gosh. For, and, for the senior games. Right. And she ended up racing, right? She ended up racing. She did the, she did the 2015 games in Minneapolis. And I, I drove to Minneapolis and I decided not to, to compete at, you know, I just, once I moved to Michigan and here, I wasn't training as much. So I decided not to compete, but I'd go coach her, or encourage her. And, uh, you know, her first bout out, she, like in the time trial, she placed seventh out of about 25 women, wow. which is just phenomenal because she's really a good athlete. That's phenomenal. And, I love that then, your friendship just blossomed based on, you know, starting with an interview and, and, and from there, that's amazing. And, and, you know, you just mentioned something, which is the perfect segue into you're, you're now living in Michigan. Um, so I kind of want to circle back and, and talk about how that happened and what you're doing now. Sure. Uh, what brought me to Michigan is, is my soulmate, I guess, or significant other called Mary Emmett. And Mary Emmett's daughter, Kelly, who was a professional mountain bike racer and a national champion in that field, uh, was my coach. She was your bicycle coach. It all comes full circle. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that was in the, uh, in the winter of 2012, I guess, or the spring of 2012. Kelly was, had, and another woman had decided to do uh, winter bicycle camps in Tucson, Arizona. I, I said it's Tempe, but it's Tucson. And um, and so what they would do is rent a house, and then they would solicit people to pay to come in and 
and be part of a bicycle camp for a week. And that was kind of an all-inclusive, you know, you got your own bedroom and, and shared meals. And, but you went out and rode six, seven hours a day and climbed wow. the mountains around Tucson. And, and this is so post-recovery. This is how, how many months after your stem cell surgery was this? No, this is before the stem cell. This is before. Okay. Okay. This was, this was 2012 in the spring and I wasn't diagnosed until the late summer. Okay. But I didn't start treatment until late summer 2012. I got you. <clears throat> okay. So anyway, this is like February 2012. So anyway, I Kelly said, you really should come to the bicycle camp because we were really gearing up for 2013. And, and she wanted to get me an early start on outside training again. Because uh, in Pennsylvania, obviously, it's cold and you're sitting on a trainer. Right. Um, so I, I subscribed to the camp and and came out to Tucson, you haul your, you fly your bicycle out and so on and so forth. And uh, so it was this ranch house in this suburb, suburb of, I mean, this area of, of, of Tucson. And, and um, so anyway, I arrived that day and, um, uh, and, you know, we're interviewed, I mean, meeting other people and Kelly was introducing me to other people. And we were standing in the kitchen and across the kitchen counter. And she, and she said, I want you to meet my mother, Mary. And, and Mary looked up, she was cooking spaghetti sauce. I remember this specifically, pasta sauce. And she looks up and looks at me in the eye. And it's like some days, sometimes in life, you just see somebody right through, you know, right through their eyes down to their soul. And I said, I'm in trouble. <laughs> It did you say out Mary, it out loud or did you say that in no, your head to yourself? <laughs> I said it in my head. And she was volunteered to be the camp cook because uh -huh. her husband had passed away from brain cancer, mm. uh, geoblastoma, and a few years before that. And so Mary would look for things to do in the wintertime and she had a camper. And so she pulled the camp out to Tucson and volunteered to be the camp cook. Uh, one of the, you know, and we all cook kind of jointly, but but still she was kind of like the head cook. Mm -hmm. And so over the, so, and, and then her, she, Mary has an interesting story about how she rode a bicycle across the country as her cancer recovery or grief recovery. And uh, so we spent the week basically in the evenings by the pool and we were talking about, you know, she would talk about her, her, her farm and, and she, and she, she owned a farm in Michigan an orchard and a cider mill and we would talk about farming because I grew up on a farm and in in hers is an apple orchard which is different than the one I grew up on but then we would talk about bicycling and she would talk about her trip across the country and so it really was a kind of an informal kind of get to know your friendship because we were the only two all the bicyclists in this camp were all you know 20s and 30s you know oh, they were, they were yeah. all young women and men and women they were young turks and and here i am you know 55 almost 60 years old and you know she's a few years older than i am so we were like the only two older people in the camp so yeah natural connection and all that right connection. and so, so that's much how it started wow and so then so you had this long friendship right and then eventually you move out to to michigan and and right. now you're now you're farming yeah it it was really two things. One after 2012. And again, how things happen in life for me are a lot of these kind of 
seminal events. And, you know, I talk about 2001 and how it kind of caused me or triggered me to become an athlete. And, and in 2012, you know, going through cancer for the third time was in, in a stem cell transplant. And anyway, so I, at that point in time, you know, I, I have this company and, and, you know, we're, we're, you know, the company's been around for 30 some years and, you know, it has ups and downs and, and, but I would sit in the desk after the stem cell when I was, and, you know, unfortunately I had had this, one of my employees that I asked to take over the company and be the general manager. And he had done an excellent job. And so I'm recovering and, and I had gotten to know Mary and, and I really wanted to pursue this. And, and, and I'm, but I'm looking at this company and I'm saying, you know, at some point in your life, you say, I really don't, I don't, I've lost my passion for this. Mm-hmm. And I was a good builder and very innovative builder. And, and one time I was director of energy for the state of Illinois and pioneered some of the early, early discussions and, and work and, and, and energy efficient design. And, but I, I just had lost my passion. I just didn't want to go to work in the morning, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And so I made an arrangement to sell the company to, to, to this gentleman and, and, um, and basically packed up my bags and, and said, here I am, what can I do to help at wow. the farm? And, and Mary had done this orchard for 30 some years in the cider mill. And she really had a kind of her own catharsis about having a food system and a health food system that was healthy for her. And, and she said, you know, I'd really like to get away from all the chemicals in, in farming. And, and, and so we had talked about, and I said, well, we need to convert this the, in the industry, they call it transition. We need to transition this, this farm to an organic certified organic farm, an orchard, which is a three-year process. Wow. And, and it's a, it's an arduous, a much more technical much more expensive and organic is an evolving industry and it's much easier to do if you're raising corn and soybeans and in an orchard it's a whole nother ball game because most conventional orchards will use anywhere from 10 to 13 10 to 30 different chemical sprays per year to control insects scab um, spray roundup underneath the trees to keep weeds down and an orchard especially in the midwest and the northeast is exposed constantly to different insect pressures and different disease pressures. What we've learned over four years, five years now, is the nexus of this is that you have to learn to make the tree so healthy, just like we have to be healthy to be immune to diseases. You have to make that tree so nutritionally complete and healthy that 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 it will shed off these a lot of these disease and pests and lo and behold it works and we're still not there but wow. but it, it it's not i guess what I, I the term i use in in a lot of conversion of organics is people do what i call input switching you know they use this pesticide in conventional and so there's an organic pesticide or organic repellent or organic herbicide and people think you could just go from product A to product B. And a lot of, lot of the need economically 
drives that system, but the core of or, organic food is it an organic production. It's a biological system in its core versus a chemistry chemical system. Hmm. The big differences. And so you it's a whole mindset change that one has to do to to accomplish that and be successful of it. And, and that's just now starting to come in its own. Wow. I can hear how passionate you are about this. Yeah. Well it's it's game changing. I mean yeah. if if we if we're serious about food is health mm-hmm. and and we're finding out that that connection between <clears throat> healthy soil, healthy food is healthy people. And mm-hmm. it is, and it's getting proven more and more. And we've gone down agriculture and food production in America in with good intentions has started. And there's a guy named John Eichard that writes about this. And But with good intention, after the post-war period, we entered into this industrialized agricultural system that is based on quantity versus quality. Mm-hmm. And it was, and it was supported that idea by the of first, ourselves is like the breadbasket of the world and all feed that. the world, feed mm-hmm. the world, mm-hmm. you know, and the chemical companies and the fertilizer companies actually coined this, this moniker called feed the world. And we've now got enough information that this wasn't the right way for us to go because mm-hmm. we've emptied out our rural communities. They're ghost towns. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, farmers today are farming 10,000 acres, 5,000 acres just to make a living. And those all used to be a hundred acre or 200 acre farms supporting a family. Well, when you eliminate all that, you've eliminated a whole economic structure in rural America and we're burning out the carbon in our soil. There's a myriad of of things, topsoil is disappearing. It just, all the results of this kind of good intention and we've really got to turn this boat around and quite frankly, the agricultural industry will never do it on its own. It's going to have to be driven by consumers. Yeah. They want, want a better food that understand the connection between healthy food is a healthy body, is healthy children. But at the same time, we have a food system and a government regulatory system that's very much geared to an industrial farming model. Mm-hmm. We've got to figure out how to rejigger that system. We've got to rejigger it. It's, I, we, some of us in the organic community call, and I serve on the today. I mean, I, I obviously my passion, but, but as an organic farmer, I'm I sit on the policy committee of, of the National Organic Farmers Association, and that's what we're trying to do in Washington is, is, is how do, how do we, how do we take an industry or a, even a regulatory system like USDA that spends $6 billion supporting the industrial farm system and 30 million, 30 million supporting organic. And clearly there's an imbalance here and we've, we've, we've got to boost this acceptance and, and information and data and seed production and so on and so forth to, to make this industry grow and provide an alternative to our food system. And it will happen, but it, and I was always telling you yesterday I, or earlier when we were talking about this work by the Bionutrient Food Association of Dan Kittrich is just absolutely groundbreaking and it will change, it will potentially change the game. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. It, it, talk about that scanner that you, that you were telling me about. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah, uh, Dan, 
Dan grew up on an organic farm in Massachusetts and, and he, he and some people, and there's a guy named Dan Vertest here who was in East Lansing and him in Massachusetts begin to, we always talk about, we have foods and you go to the grocery store and there are three different bags of carrots or five different bags of apples from different growers and potatoes and so on and so forth. We really don't, and the standards of, you know, you see the nutrient content of a food on a USDA label or on a food label. And it's really based on a test that the USDA does of that particular food once every three years. And they go out to a grocery store and buy three bags of carrots and test it and, and say, well, carrots have this nutrient value. It's actually totally meaningless because hmm. it doesn't reflect uh, the, what we call the nutrient density of food. What, what minerals does that food? And we do know through, through detailed testing that a, 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 the nutrient density of a green pepper, as a case in point, is about half the level it was 15 or 20 years ago. And so the scanner, I think you were telling me you can point it at, at one carrot grown on a, like a big farm and versus something grown on an organic farm. And you're going to, it's going to tell you the difference in the nutrient value between the growing methods. And is that right? Exactly. Yes. It, it, but these are big instruments that they use in laboratories to test density of food. And it's a scanner, but it's, you can do it in a laboratory. It's very expensive and it's a one-off. Mm-hmm. And what these guys were successful in doing is miniaturizing this technology into a handheld instrument. And so when you scan a carrot or an apple or a cup of milk or whatever, it gives you a re- re- reading. It's just like you would take a blood test and you get this reading back and say, you know, the iron and the platelets and blah, 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 you know, is all based on the same machinery. Well, this thing gives you a reading back saying that the, the amount of vitamin A in this thing is X and B and C and K and whatever. Wow. And so they were able to do this and get this data back off of a handheld scan. And basically one takes a carrot and sticks it in front of this little scanner and you can scan this carrot and it will t- give you data back saying what the nutrient, what the nutrient content of that particular carrot. That in itself doesn't really mean much unless you can compare it to a lot of other carrots. Mm-hmm. So what they have done, what they've done, and they've been very successful. There are a lot of food companies that are, are funding this program now. And Dan has made a commitment that this data, this development is all going to be open source. So anybody in the world can access their, their technology. That's incredible. Yeah, it that's is incredible. incredible. And that's the Bionutrient Food Association, right? Did you, right. And, and I think you said that their eventual goal is to have it as, an, as a sort of an app on your phone that you that's could- That's correct. That's incredible and exciting. Um, I'm just, I love, I'm, I'm going to ask you, the, you know, one of the ultimate rude questions. What, how old are you now? I'm 71. That's what I, I, that's what I thought. So you're 71 years old and with the whole new passion, a whole new drive, um, which I, you know, I just have to think you, you had such, you had such a turnaround from your diagnosis with cancer to, uh, becoming healthful and changing so much in your life. Right. Yes. And here you are doing yeah, organic yeah. farming in Michigan after all and, these years and trying to change a food system. Right. <laughs> 
Right. See, it's never too late. I, all of us owe our children and our grandchildren really a really strong look at this. And what can we all do to kind of turn this boat around? Because only the consumer will pull this thing around. And we all underestimate our own power, don't you think? Well, very much so. But we yeah. have the power of this podcast as a case in point. Yeah. And how it can move people. Yeah. Thanks. That's why I do this. <laughs> I know you do. Thank you. I love it. Oh my gosh, Mike, I could talk to you all day. I I I might have to have you back on at some point. Um mm -hmm. just many, many, many thanks. I'm it's amazing to me to see you thriving. Um and I, you know, it the choice and it, it's all because you decided to own your power, I think. Um, you, you, you made changes to your life and, and you have continued to, to do that. You know, you, you, you took it on, you took the bull by the horns, so to speak. But we, you know, all of us have to take one day at a time and do the best we can every day. And, and we can't, and as Barbara talks in her book about, which I really highly recommend anyone in their fifties oh. plus needs to read. Seriously, read, people. It is absolutely essential for all of us to repurpose ourselves constantly. That book, Mike, I can't tell you. I It was compelling. Uh, the way that she combines the research into aging and midlife with her own story yes. uh, just compelled me to keep reading and fascinating the way she interwove everything. Uh, Life Reimagined is the name of the book, folks, and I will put that in the show, show notes. It's definitely a highly recommended read for everybody you know her other just aside her other book or first book is called fingerprints of god but the book basically is an examination of the science and belief of faith and how those two intersect from time to time it's a fascinating read too i am gonna have to pick that up next for sure mike thank you for okay, being thank with you me today much. i totally appreciate it okay well there you have it Mike's story just goes to show that we are all capable of turning adversity into something beautiful when we really take charge of what we can control, even when so much is out of our control. If you want to know more about anything we talked about, I'll have that information for you in the show notes. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 35. While you're there, you can also... Find a link to the sign-up sheet for your free guide, Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot. Hey, by the way, this is kind of a two-parter because next week I'm talking to Barbara Bradley Haggerty, whose book Life Reimagined led me to Mike in the first place. Barbara was a much-loved voice on NPR for many years, and I'm a total NPR fangirl, so I'm so excited to have her here. Thanks so much for listening. Um... If you're enjoying the podcast, would you please help me spread the word? You can leave a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast app, or just let a friend know about it. I'd really appreciate your help. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.